0: Welcome everybody. Um, first things first. Um, if you haven't already done so, please um, please scan the QR code. Take out your phones, scan the QR code, and answer the survey question. Um, we're going to ask you the same question at the end of the debate, um, and we will post the results on impactdebates.com So you'll actually be able to see what happened today. Um, I'm Steve Hellman. By the way, I'm managing partner of Mobility Impact Partners which is a coalition of mobility stakeholders, auto companies, tier one suppliers, electric utilities, telecoms, finance, insurance, oil and gas companies, fleets, freight, logistics, also also cities and municipalities that work together on common challenges, find solutions, invest in those solutions, and then kind of bring those solutions back into their operating businesses. We've teamed up with Commotion, with Bain, with EPRI, with the Auto Tech Council and others, to organize the impact debate series where we basically tackle some challenges, some controversial challenges within the mobility ecosystem. Today's debate is on EVTOL. The resolution of today's debate is, EVTOL will represent an important component of urban transportation within the next decade. Arguing pro that EVTOL will be an important element of urban transportation is, who brings perspectives from her experience in local government, engineering, consulting, and now managing new mobility products and infrastructure at, at Supernol. Suprano. Suprano, 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 I got that wrong. Arguing Khan would be Mihir Rinja, who literally did a PhD examining the economic and operational feasibility of urban air mobility, much through NASA Langley-sponsored research. And moderating the debate will be Salita Reynolds. Who is the Chief Innovation Officer at LA Metro and who needs no introduction to this audience? And if there were anybody that either that the two sides actually need to convince of their argument, it would be Salida. Before um, we get started, a few houseco- uh, housekeeping items. The session is being recorded. Registered guests, guests will receive a link to the recording. It also will be permanently available on the Impact Debates website. The debates on the record, members of the media are free to use the material. Um, In that regard, please note importantly that all the debaters are here today in their individual capacities, not as representatives of their organizations or companies. Um, There's not going to be a question and answer session, so if you have some questions, just come and chat with people afterwards. Um, And the debate will follow a very structured format developed with the assistance of the American Debate League. Each debater will present their opening arguments for six minutes. Followed by three minute remarks. Salida will then drive them through three different topics um, before they make their closing statements. So um, the pro argument, Adrian will always go first, followed by Mihir and Khan. Um, Salida, over to you.
1: Okay, should we just go over here and have a seat?
0: I think, yeah, I yeah. think you guys just go and have a seat. Yeah. Maybe make yourself comfortable.
1: It. Let's do it. Hi, hi, friends. Um, so, thanks for joining us. Adrian and I were just talking about the fact that you know it's a beautiful, sunny day outside in the city of Los Angeles, um, and I'm sure sitting in a, a darkened amphitheater talking about EV tolls um, takes a special breed of co-patriot. So, thank you for being here. And um, I just want to say, you know, when I came to the job I have before the the one I have now at Metro, I was a general manager for LADOT for eight years. And when I got to LEDOT in 2014, um, I had two things on my mind. One of them was uh, Vision Zero, and the other one was um, actually drones. Um, Because at the time, the the sort of idea of moving people in mass um, in in vertical, uh, you know, take up and landing was still a twinkle in a, you know, sci-fi writer's eye. Um, But there were a lot of conversations about um, drone hobby hobbyists and I wanted to start a conversation about the value of public space that's above our heads um, because I'm very passionate about public space and I'm passionate about the fact that public space ought to return dividends equitably to all of us who collectively own it. So as we talk about this topic I have to admit that I am still quite skeptical that EV tolls are really going to power a future transportation revolution, that they are going to have a meaningful impact on congestion. Um, I think there is a possibility that they could actually revolutionize the way we do small urban goods delivery, um, but I am not so cynical that I'm giving up hope. When there's billions of dollars in a private market thrown at a technology, Um, I want cities and communities and neighborhoods to be at that table talking about outcomes. And so today, I just wanna challenge both uh, Adrian, and both sides to to just focus on those things. Um, What real problems does this solve? And how can we keep our eyes focused on the tremendous challenges that transportation must address? Correcting racial and socioeconomic inequities, climate, public health, community happiness, because the ability to learn from our past mistakes seems to continue to elude us. But as an eternal optimist, I remain hopeful um, that in conversations like these, we can really challenge ourselves. So with that, I'm going to turn the floor over to Adrian um, and I'm going to keep time, which should be fun because I'm always late. Um, which my my staff can tell you, um, and uh, we're just you're just going to kick us off and give your opening your opening statement. Great. Um, thanks everyone
2: for being here today, and great to see some familiar faces and some new ones. And thank you to Salida and here for uh, for organizing, and uh, Steve for inviting us to join. Um, so I am what you might I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a technology evangelist. So this is an interesting role for me to be in. Um, I go into the urban mobility space because, to the latest point, with billions of dollars being funneled into such an industry, I think it's really important that we think methodically about how we can actually create a meaningful contribution to the transportation environment. I think we focused a lot on things like congestion, um, but I'm talking about some different sort of frameworks that I think can, not necessarily, um, they're not, Sure, it's take place where they're all right? but I think that they are going to be the drivers that will keep us towards a North Star of ensuring that there are uh, meaningful outcomes that result for an air mobility that contribute to equity, uh, increased access, decreased, uh, increased affordability, um, and, and really contribute to place making and connectivity between co- communities. Um, so I just wanted to sort of start with talking a little bit about population trends and implications. You know, factors of agglomeration, coupled with a rift in sort of transportation demand and land use planning, in addition to individual development decisions have really contributed, uh, whether we like it or not to a persistent pattern of, of what you would call urban sprawl the, the the dirty word but sort of the truth of the matter, and these use the images that are before you to sort of demonstrate how we see population growth that has uh, really spread out over time, people are less concentrated. Um, And at the same time, that presents different and unique challenges And how we can connect them and ensuring that some communities are not left out from being connected to others, being connected to the core network in dense urban areas where a lot of the economic activity happens. We're not in a position, which is increasingly um, the case where people are having to uh, live far outside of their communities to drive into economic centers. you know, I I think my other sort of point around UAM and why it could be a viable sort of uh, solution to some of the customer transport uh, frustration with transport um, is not necessarily that we're going to. Reduce congestion overnight. I think it's a little bit of a fallacy to say you're just reducing congestion. I think you're adding modal sort of choice and capacity to the network. Um, and that's very, I think any transportation trainer in the room probably knows that you don't ever solve congestion, right? You're just redistributing people through other ways of getting around. Um, the purpose of the slide that you're seeing really is to say that uh while our options have increased, prices are also increasing rapidly. And this is actually a quite conservative um estimation this morning. Uh, I paid 12. Uh, dollars per mile right to use an uber um and uh and at the same time people's efficiency sort of their, their ability to get from place to place is um, becoming more challenging because congestion has increased across the board um, I also think that, you know, AAM, if, if it's methodically planned into the transportation network, that is to say, accounts for a number of different factors, including um, the societal goals, objectives around green economy, social racial equity, um, economic growth and opportunity, I think it can fill gaps in the transportation system by increasing connectivity between places that are currently difficult to serve or unsustainable using either traditional aviation technology or existing ground-based technology. And at the same time, I think it can contribute to, can contribute to placemaking through the implementation of lower impact and lower cost infrastructure than what would be required to connect those two points on the ground and potentially capture latent demand with an emphasis on sort of location-based strategies and decisions that optimize micro pedestrian access, and transit access to border ports. Um, and as we know, there is a demonstrable relationship between infrastructure investment and economic growth. Um, there is not always a clear case for, they may not have enough demand to build a high capacity fixed route you know, transportation system um, that connects two places, and it's very hard to build on on top of communities that already exist, right? Um, I worked on the before and after study on on the metro rail line back in the day, uh, and and it can be very, very challenging um, and and disruptive in its own right. And sometimes, again, you don't have enough demand in one place or another, enough concentration of population that it really justifies it. That said, should those people uh, be excluded from being driven into the network? Um, For example, being able to access the transit services by uh, going from a longer distance into that urban core. Um, I also think that there's a really interesting opportunity to uh, really leverage new aviation technology to increase asset utilization in communities that lost their economic engine. So we have a, you know, we have a lot of airports and there's a lot of studies that have come out about how the number of regional airports we have in the United States. That said, you have a fairly limited number of percentage of them that are actually being utilized, um which does two things. It creates sort of undue impact on people who live in those aviation heavy communities. Um, so I think replacing with potentially uh, revolutionary technologies um, that will really change the sort of impact profile of aviation is important. At the same time, can you look at different locations where you don't necessarily need to make, really intense investments or large investments in the infrastructure, um, but you can provide the uh, economic benefit of revitalizing that asset, right, which was presumably placed there for a reason, and especially when you look at sort of the proximity of how people how close people live to these different um, regional airports I think there starts to become sort of a compelling constellation of um, of location based opportunities uh, to generate economic opportunity and also increase access to new transportation service within those communities. Um, so this is all sort of to say, uh, you know, we leverage tech advancements and focus on the network level approach to developing the, the infrastructure to me that reduces the overall price point and distributes the benefits and the impacts more evenly uh, and reasonably within communities. Um, And I would say the key takeaway for me is that if the right planning process is followed, scale could be achieved that supports UAM as, I I don't love the term revolutionary, but as a meaningful contribution to the transportation network. And then we have to focus on designing aircraft for consumer comfort, for needs, um, and a methodical approach to building that network, um, you know, presents
1: a unique opportunity to reduce cost. Excellent. All right. Let me (laughs) hear
3: I'm just going to do a quick mic check. Is it working? Uh, oh, sorry. Thank you so much. Oops. Okay. Yeah, so, okay. yeah. So, thank you so much. Uh, today, I will take you guys through a realistic perspective of passenger market of urban air mobility. Some people have been saying that the age of just is here and the air taxi is going to be a common place and we'll see I mean, and it will be a considerable mode of transportation inside urban spaces. I have studied the feasibility of urban air mobility, and today I will try to convince you guys why urban air mobility has limited scalability, and why you won't see hundreds of these tolls flying simultaneously inside an urban space. So, what is Stopping UM from becoming a revolution uh, becoming a revolutionary mode urban transportation specifically. Uh, we'll go through some barriers. Uh, the first one are uh, the economic barriers where uh, we can see that uh, very high cost of infrastructure, there is a very limited target market for this and and along comes the high development and certification costs. And then there are very tough operational challenges, which includes optimal placement of infrastructure to be able to efficiently capture the demand and then integrating UM into already congested urban air spaces. And then the last, but the most important one is relating to the public perception, which could alone affect the adoption of this model. We will talk about this factor in detail. So, the first problem is basically overestimation of target market. Um, the travel times. Uh, in the long run, the major attraction for urban mobility is basically travel time savings, and that can happen in two cases: either very long trips or very congested routes. Now, being able to capture or uh, being uh, for urban mobility to be able to attract passengers, it's very important to target the trips between 20 to 30 miles, because 30 miles, the network network becomes sparse, and uh, and your operational efficiency decreases And also the total trip cost increases significantly compared to the uh, alternative trip modes. And below 20 miles, generally speaking, the travel time savings are marginal, and the and the inconvenience due to transfers, waiting times, excess times is significant. So as you can see here, uh, according to the NHTS, National Health Travel Survey, only nine to 10% of trips are are longer than 20 miles. So we need to, like, that limits the target market significantly. So, vehicle de- high vehicle development costs and certification costs are expected to drive the fare per seat mile higher basically and we have developed some life cycle cost models and i can tell you guys that even with high favoring um parameters we were, we were never able to get the fare per seat mile for less than three dollars per mile 15 to 20 years down the line now the major operational challenge is the location of infrastructure. That means you want to minimize the excess distance and excess times for the passengers. For that, you will need to provide infrastructure where people want to travel, which is basically high activity zones like central business districts, downtown, San Francisco financial district, and Manhattan uh, downtown. And you can see why that's a challenge. According to the latest guidelines by FA, you need almost 10,000 square feet of load-bearing surface to support just one water pad with the critical dimension of 50 feet, which is, is, as you can see, which is very common in current prototypes. So just one water pad requires 10,000 feet of load-bearing surface. You can see why that's a problem of, of being able to provide Infrastructure at the optimal location.
0: Um, now, the other operational
3: challenge is basically cost and capacity. Real estate, and as we saw, that we need to provide infrastructure where people want so we can minimize excess, but infrastructure is also, uh, I mean, the real estate is limited in those locations. And as we can see, and we use some helicopter guidelines to create some life cost model and basic vertical designs with minimal operational footprint. And as you can see, here, have a pad uh, with six parking spaces, which can support up to 30 operations, let's say 15 <laughs> landings and 15 takeoffs. Uh, takes about two acres of space and costs anywhere between five to six million dollars and i want to note that um, and remind that we are using very um uh, favorable, favorite favoring parameters here now another challenge is integrating into already congested urban spaces the demand of the potential exists in large urban areas but unfortunately the airspace is also the most congested in those urban Cities so called um, like spaces. So, this is one day of traffic in uh, our NYC area. And imagine how delay incurring and challenging this process would be to integrate UM, uh, like hundreds of vehicles flying already in a commercially congested area. Now, we are talking about the public perception related issues. People are generally afraid of flying in small vehicle at low altitude, and it can get worse when there are high skyscrapers around or when when there is wind gusts and uh, any kind of inclement weather conditions. And also, people are in general less tolerant of accidents and uh, more concerned about safety in aviation-related mode. Alright,
1: we so, you have to wrap.
3: Okay, yeah, so, so, it, uh, so, you yeah, I mean, people would take their time, there would be very small, uh, I mean, very, very slow adoption curve for this mode.
1: So, I will stop you there um, and just say, you know, Adrian has some great points about mobility deserts. um You know, you've all heard of food deserts, mobility deserts also exist um but me here also making a good point that while the FAA may let you fly it's really cities that let you take off and land and the there are complex issues on the ground so i'm going to give you each um 3 minutes uh, for a battle starting with Adrian Yeah, so thanks, Mihirany. You made some great
2: points. Um, I think I'd like to highlight some counterpoints here. Um, One is that I think Age of the Jetsons, there's a lot of branding in this industry, and I think we need to move away from the branding in order to actually make this a meaningful form uh, and contribution to the urban environment and to non urban environments. I also heard a lot of focus on urban dwellers. So, a lot of downtown San Francisco, a lot of downtown Los Angeles, a lot of downtown. Uh, New York City, but I showed some transportation maps earlier that show that people are living in a whole lot of different types of places that are not necessarily a downtown location. Uh, we've also provided different opportunities for how you can use, uh, a, you know, existing mobility infrastructure, um, existing aviation infrastructure uh, to complement that network. And I would just say on the FAA piece, you know, I think that is a document that's still very much under development um, and has not been finalized, and it looks very close to helicopter guidelines. And if the idea of this new transportation is to move away from helicopters. Um, you know, I, I, I think probably the, the standard will end up moving away from helicopters. Um, the other just thing I'll say is that, you know, we focus so much on existing data and commuting networks and, and those, again, urban areas. Um, data will show you that people don't travel um, past 15 to 20 miles all that frequently. Um, they do do it. Uh, We're doing a lot of studies right now to understand latent demand. Why would they, what would they do if they could travel uh, further distances? But if you look at sort of the cost per mile, and that includes your personal vehicles, right, which tons of people are switching to electric right now across many income demographics because of those uh, costs. um, I think basically what I'm trying to say is that we are focusing on a set of data that is, can, people are constrained by a set of factors that limits their ability to go longer distances, right? And connect communities, even though those communities tend to be, um, especially in the case of Southern California, right? Got almost 20 million people over 200 square miles. So um, I, I just think that there's a shift in narrative and that's actually what's going to drive the industry towards making meaningful contributions and getting to a price point um, and getting to a type of network that supports um, this particular sort of technology as something that's more quote, revolutionary than it is,
1: uh, say, a niche product. No, um, you're So, uh, yeah, so, um,
0: yeah, okay.
3: So, Um. I mean, there are some amazing points with Solitum, uh, which Adrian just mentioned. I would like to first uh, counter the, like, there. In urban transportation, unlike regional transportation, people shift mode. Just because a new mode is available, that doesn't mean that people are like will be able to move further away. And especially when we are talking about urban mobility, it's significantly less reliable than any other ground transportation mode. Okay, uh, today you, you you think that you can move away from the city 20 miles out and you uh, so you can commute or you can travel to spaces just using urban air mobility. Uh, urban air mobility has so many unreliable uh, unreliability related factors which which you would need to consider uh it's it's not something like heavy rail or your personal vehicle which would be available all the time which would be available uh in in a minute or two if if you're if you're if you're particularly moving away to a sparsely populated areas infrastructure there would be limited and you would have to you would have more excess time so uh, the network is sparse you won't always have the vehicle available there and to be able to do that you need a large you spaces so basically the deadheading would increase you will have to uh, call vehicles from further away which could uh, which could increase the time and in all, uh, the reliability factor of urban mobility decreases when we uh, when we talk about uh, people m- moving further away just because they are they can now travel quickly uh, using this mode. And it takes years and years of development for the land use to change and the built environment to uh, to uh, to basically build and. Uh, and it's just not easy to, for people to just move away from cities further away. Uh, and just to point another thing that uh, the, the cost of transportation is increasing, but what makes us think that is it's not going to be same for urban mobility. Urban mobility is, in fact, very much dependent on ground transportation for efficient access. Yeah, no, uh, uh, with limited infrastructure, you uh, you need to... Bring together ground transportation to for uh, efficient access of the whole trip because it's a multimodal concept. So that uh, it shares, it literally shares a lot of characteristics with ground transportation and other types of transportation. So it will also be affected by the rising trend of transportation cost.
1: I right, mean, okay. times up. Okay. <laughs> All right. Should we start it up and just talk like geek out on economics for a minute? Um, So uh, I'm going to give you each two minutes to defend your cost curve for all of the business people in the audience. (laughs) Oh, a business person. Welcome, (laughs) Adrian. The floor is yours. Um, Thanks,
2: Lita. And it's it's always fun to debate someone with a PhD with a lot of data they can talk about. I do not have data that I'm allowed to disclose. But in any event, um, so I'll just say that you know, as we hear noted his opening statement, cost curve is going to be driven by a value of time savings. And to me, that just puts significant pressure on the AM industry to conduct due diligence, to leverage data and collaborate across a lot of different stakeholders to identify the right locations, where those be, uh, you know, the, the time savings are optimized. Um, and additionally, you know, I do think that leveraging the, you know, falling technology costs uh, reduced impact um, of those technologies on communities can it can still radically revolutionize the state of the aviation um, industry in terms of operational costs and what becomes way more accessible than what we've seen previously. Um, at the same time, the cost curve does reduce as the number of passengers increase and the network gets to scale, further. the point that if done right from a holistic approach that enables AM as a meaningful part of the transportation network, um, that it That really affordability increases right so again I I focus on process here Um, land use policies do take a long time to to change, which is why you have to start working on them and think about how you're going to demonstrate impact benefit contributions, I mean I think these are all. This is the impetus on the industry in order to make this a meaningful form of transportation Uh, last I'll just say, you know, a a combination of technology enablers policies um, practical service decisions. Um, All of these contribute to bringing down operating costs, open access infrastructure provides the most competitive value for consumers, and as business model innovation leverages willingness to pay, it can increase access to more people, which is something we already see in aviation today. Um, Also to say that, you know, new aviation can play a critical in the green economy. Um, feasibility of other technologies has been demonstrated like EVs um, in part through government-sponsored incentivization towards green technology, uh, which vehicle manufacturers and aviation are actively evaluating for their own products and services. And I do believe this applies to both um, the supply side infrastructure and the demand side on vehicle production. Lastly, I'll just say, I think the more that we can cross, you know, as all of the transportation verticals converge around the same technologies, as we leverage um the same infrastructure to support multiple modes of transportation will have more success in decreasing the overall costs
1: all right two
2: minutes
0: over to you here okay thank you so much so uh, i mean i went through multiple
3: market studies uh during my research and uh, they have used different types of methodology different types of data to be able to project uh, the cost per passenger lines, some OEMs say that is going to be between anywhere between three to four, or some of them say that it's going to be more than four. Some of the system analysis say that it's going to be close to $5 per mile. And we really need to ask this question that if this mode is going to be that costly, you need to design your network to capture the demand at that price point with high price point which is likely because you are putting so much money into the development you will start the service with relatively higher price you are further limiting the target market and also being able to capture that demand in the target market you need to design your initial what you put, network service operation everything according to that target market and unlike any other commodity with more no trips it's very less likely that the price of uh, ticket or price of using UM would draw because you have already designed your infrastructure which is very costly it's just not like any other transportation mode not like ride sharing apps which are using the same infrastructure uh, you have to develop infrastructure again to be able to further spread the market and to do that you need to again pump up the money and it's very uh, it's uh, it's very unlikely that you will be able uh, to basically drop the ticket price. Um, we did a commuter study in uh, surrounding this area with 17 counties and giving a lot of advantage to UAM uh, with without any, uh, like
0: no
3: no kind of delays, whether delays or operational delays and assume full adoption. And we do just 0.05% of the demand that can be captured at $3 per mile. And we are talking about a uh, much higher price point.
0: Uh,
1: Adrian to respond. Yeah, um, so I would say I think we
2: tend to focus on new infrastructure a lot and the costs surrounding new infrastructure. And I don't disagree, infrastructure is expensive. It's in fact, many projects that are currently slated are getting more expensive, right? Because of labor costs, um, construction materials, um, inflation. There's a whole lot of factors that are increasing infrastructure costs across the board. Um, I would just posit that to the extent that, again, all of these new mobility technologies are converging around the same core set of enabling technologies, specifically around energy. Um, I'll just use that one as a a grounding example, because energy is often the most cost variable aspect of of any project, building new energy systems in and accounting for that. Um, I think that there's a couple of ways you can reduce. One is, again, leveraging multiple um, beneficiaries in the modal system from that new infrastructure and the new infrastructure upgrades. And second, I'll just say, I think you can de-risk the infrastructure investments um, by focusing on those aspects and phasing the infrastructure and over time that most benefits multiple modes. That is to say exactly. increasing grid resiliency um, and yeah, encouraging other modes.
1: I'm right here.
3: Yeah, sure. So unlike any other transportation mode, urban air mobility, we need to to be able for this mode to capture demand. It's I can't, uh, I can't uh, stress more that the infrastructure has to be in the right place. If someone wants to travel somewhere between, let's say, uh, New York or Manhattan, some like somewhere, in the center and you are thinking of using the existing infrastructure nearby as a mobility hub that's gonna increase the excess time transfers by another five ten minutes and that could basically be the majority of travel time savings you are able to offer to them so any kind of excess waiting walking time, and the inconvenience which comes with it is very unattractive, especially for high paying customers, which are paying a, a heavy premium compared to current
0: transportation mode. And, uh, and mobility helps. Uh, okay, uh, later.
1: Okay, now we're going to talk about energy. Um, so to bring us back here to state of California, planet Earth, Milky Way galaxy, where just this last summer, uh, many uh, transit operators that operate uh, electric buses got a phone call from the state um, on a high heat day saying, um, you cannot recharge your fleet during these periods because the grid can't withstand the demands. Um, What does that mean? as we think about you know, the life cycle costs, the the, the tax on the grid, um, and our ability to meet the demand of an increasingly electrifying fleet on the ground, um, as we talk about you know, the, the cleanliness of these fleets in the sky. Because I can guarantee you that no mayor, no governor, um, is, is at least in some of the, the highest value markets, is gonna have any interest in opening the skies to vehicles that do not operate on clean energy. But when that clean energy um, is needed for a variety of different things, how do you square that? Um, So uh, two minutes for each of you um, to talk a little bit about eVTOL sustainability um, from an energy perspective. Yeah, so... I appreciate that prompting, Salida. I, I think the,
2: the takeaway that I hear from that, because I, I, I'm with you, right? There's, there, we're facing a fundamental challenge, and I don't think this is unique in the United States. This is a global issue as everyone tries to sort of rapidly convert to a green economy, is that there's not enough energy being produced, right? You don't have enough clean energy to actually support and power um, uh, the the wide range of vehicles that are relying on it and i'll say a couple of things one is that we are heavily focused on certain types of alternative energy so we've hyper focused on batteries some of these may be battery electric but for example there are movements to look at hydrogen applications or hydrogen fueling right to charge those batteries um to reduce the overall sort of impact of uh the types of energy that we're using i would say the other thing that to me sort of resonates there is that people we need to invest in, in upgrading our energy grid and our systems. And I think one of the things that's interesting about aviation is that it requires sort of a high bar for what those energy requirements look like. And I do think that if we look at what that high bar looks like and try and plan backwards from that, you could actually look at these infrastructure sites as potentially increasing grid resiliency in communities offering sort of a, especially as other capital comes into the market to meet aviation requirements. Um, I do think there's a pathway there where you can start spreading um, the benefits to a lot of other modes that are also struggling, uh, including communities themselves uh, who are also struggling. Airports currently, right, who are investing in microgrid resiliency. There's a lot of challenges in the overall energy infrastructure landscape, um, and I think that's you know that's something that is not unique to AAM and something that if we can plan around the high requirements of AAM um and leverage their capital to support existing modes of transportation, we can really um, potentially hopefully make a dent. Great.
1: Me here.
3: Okay, yeah. I mean, I mean there is no denying that evital is certainly much more sustainable than traditional helicopters and any other kinds of models. But are we really able, like would you would would the operators be able to operate them uh, in a sustainable way? To do that, there are some factors which we need to think. Transporting anything on the ground, even low power, high power, electric, non-electric, is much more or less energy intensive than actually taking something something vertically off, traveling in air and landing vertically down. That's just the uh, profile for UM operation. Now, when we talk about networks, when we talk about operational, uh, uh, when we talk about real-time operations, the nature of UAM is that it's all about travel time savings and things like trip pooling, things like repositioning flights, when we actually talk about them, uh, and in the literature we have seen that the repositioning of UM would be around 0.5 to 0.75 per flight. So you are actually flying an empty vehicle with almost same energy cost to to be able to transport someone from one one place to another. And then the trip pooling concept of a four seater uh, to be able can we, can you really? someone uh, for 10-15 minutes, so you so you can club some uh, some other passenger on the same route just to get 50% of the load factor. Sometimes you may not be able to, and that's what's the point. It's in, in theory, it is sustainable, it is more energy efficient, but when we are talking about operational, and we will ha- sometimes we have to operate UM in much more, uh, like much less sustainable way than uh, any other transportation mode just to be able to maintain the market.
1: Great. All right. I'll give you each a minute to
2: respond. Well, I would posit that there is no market if you're having to maintain just an unprofitable market or one that is not at all commercially viable, which is to say, I think when we think about a methodical planning process, right, presumably you're going to be optimizing for less deadhead flights. Um, I think you're going to be focusing on uh those trips again that are difficult or impossible to make or that currently are not served by sustainable modes of transportation um and i think you know, we talk about ingress time and egress time. I think that's still very heavily focused on this idea that you're making sh- very short trips within sort of core dense urban environments and serving a very specific niche part of the population. I think it's a bit of a revisioning around looking at how many people within a lot of different places that are again not in these downtown areas um, leverage business model innovation uh, in order to create sustainable operating models. Um, And I think, you know, there's also a lot of uh, advancements in demand aggregation that can be leveraged to increase the capacity of each vehicle um, and also ensure that you are creating the right types of trips. And to me, a lot of that comes down to to business model innovation and down the private sector to make sure that their products are competitive, that they offer value, um, and that they're not operating at at a loss. And I think that is a core part of sustainability.
1: All right, Nahir.
3: Yes, yeah, so uh, that's a very interesting point, Ipan, and like again, there is no doubt. Then, in theory, like you would want to. I mean, it is sus- much more sustainable than any other ground transportation mode. But again, when when you have to make a mode choice shift, sustainability, energy efficient is most of the times uh, an after afterthought you are looking to um, you are looking to save time you're looking to save money you're thinking about less inconvenience and when these factors are in mind as an individual you are looking for uh, something uh, like a mode which is better for you so all um, and so that puts a lot of pressure on operators to be able to cater that demand and at the same time uh, being able to uh, being able to and be energy efficient, and again, I come back to my point that uh, it's very difficult in urban space only to be energy efficient for urban mobility.
1: Excellent. Um, actually, uh, you know, energy is going to be a challenge that all of transportation is going to have to tackle um, across the board. And you know, as we sort of double down on electrification, uh, I think it, it's going to present some unique challenges. I did learn today about the Pooh bus. Have y'all heard of this? It exists in England. It runs on human waste. And the branding is, so Google it. Um, But I think we are going to have to start to have um, a more creative conversation about um, how we're going to power the the mobility fleet of the future um, and how we are not going to, in doing that, um, double down on negative externalities um, to uh, low-income communities of color across the board that are already bearing the burden of our existing um, energy use. So, uh, with that, now we're going to transfer our transition over to talking about investable opportunities. Um, and I have to admit that phrase sort of turns my stomach. Um, so instead, I would like to know, you know, what are the can you make money and do good at the same time? And if you are trying to reframe this conversation. Adrian, to your very uh, well-thought-out points about what this thing is, what this industry is, who it serves, et cetera, how do you also make a compelling uh, case to the investment community and what are those opportunities?
2: Yeah, so I will actually go back and start with energy. Um So if you want to connect sort of, I think, what, what you're talking with with uh, investable opportunities... I think the way you de-risk the investment around AAM, right, which heavily relates to the infrastructure. Granted, the the, the aircraft themselves is a, is a sunken cost, right? To a certain extent, um, it's, an, it's expensive to commercialize, and, and we understand that. Uh, I do think, however, there is and uh, there's a there's both an economic. And a moral imperative to update aviation technologies, whether it's through hydrogen, whether it's through battery electric, um, whether that's large aircraft um, and whether that's small aircraft, I think there is a moral imperative to improve aviation technologies and their impacts on communities. Um, I would say that the where you really start de-risking the overall investment around uh, advanced mobility and especially if we talk about the infrastructure, which I think not has pointed out multiple times is really the challenging part. Um, you focus on common infrastructure to other mobility and societal goals. Uh, that's really alternative energy systems, grid resiliency. Battery systems, alternative uh, renewable energy, and ecosystem enabling like deployment of sensor technology that again adds value to multiple types of mobility solutions, and not just mobility solutions, but again other social, um, economic, and sort of technical goals that need to take place. Um, and I think you you know focus on early use cases, proven technological benefits, and and how you enhance cost savings. Um, but I I think the, the the sweet spot is you have somewhere in between a commercially viable side or network, a technically feasible side or network, and a regulatory totally feasible side or network. And somewhere in the middle of that Venn, Venn diagram, diagram Venn.
1: love it, Venn diagram in this industry. Um, so yeah. it okay. Yes, well, you know, um,
2: I can only bring down Venn diagrams, process me here, very sophisticated tables. Um, yeah, I think somewhere in the middle is where your sweet spot, especially when we think about an initial network. Uh, which is really what's going to enable you to scale, which is, again, what sort of gets you to that price point of profitability that becomes particularly attractive to people. All right, great, let me hear.
0: Okay. Um, so when we are talking about investable opportunity, it's really important um, that um, the people interested interest in it
3: and trying to ask ourselves that who are we trying to serve by this? And there's no denying that we all know the, who the target market would be. And in order to make money, you need to capture that demand. But do we really need a mode which is gonna focus on high paying customers? People are struggling in urban areas with loss and travel times, not being able to access most of the jobs, uh, uh, people relatively in low income, parts are not able to do work from home. They want even better, more efficient uh, and uh, and uh, to say more economical ways of uh, of traveling to work in places. And why I focus on workplaces? Because first, uh, if if you want to say that they are going to be a mass transportation using UAM, U- U- you need to ask yourself, I mean, you need to tap into Delhi uh, uh daily use or daily trip purposes. And apart from commuting, you just go for shopping errands and uh, picking up the uh, kids from school. And there is no other trip purpose on daily purpose, which is more time sensitive than commuting. So being able to provide people with more uh, cost efficient way of commuting uh, to places who can't really work from home and have the option of telecommuting is the way to uh, basically improve our urban transportation mode and not just focusing and building a lot of infrastructure, putting a lot of money on on, on something we know uh, is targeting a very limited part of our, our urban population. All right, a minute each.
2: Well, I would just start by saying, here, I'm not sure how many times you've tried to get from the North Valley to SoFi Stadium, <laughs> which people of all kinds of income demographics choose to prioritize their spending on, but it is very, very challenging. Um, and, and so I just, I said to say, you know, again, I think we continuously sort of talk about this um, sort of commuter, that's how you have to capture the market that maybe. Long-range way of capturing the market, maybe a short-range way of capturing the market. I'm, you know, there's, I don't think there's a crystal ball there, um, but I would like to say that I don't think anyone's sitting in mass transit here. Um, I think what you know we wanted to focus on was was it a meaningful contribution to the transportation network? Mm-hmm. Um, I have not seen many studies that say it's going to comprise more than what five to seven percent of, of all trips taken. Um, if what we're asking is anything that is a new technology needs to functionally be mass transit, then you're pretty much limiting that to mass transit. And that is high capacity fixed route transit or not fixed route transit, but it's high capacity. Cars are not high capacity, right? So, I mean, I just think, we have to be careful with the terminology that we use. And the last thing I'll just say is that you know if you look at the history of, of aviation, we have found many different ways to increase access by leveraging willingness to pay um, by providing different um, levels of services, um, by customizing services. and I think that's been pretty successful if you look at generally what has become a much higher percentage of the flying population. And I do wonder sometimes if we limit ourselves um, in thinking about
3: how we can be more creative. Okay, yeah, that's right. um But aviation in general is very different than urban mobility. In urban mobility, we are talking about very small margins of our trips, which are done um, much more frequently than
0: aviation-related trips, and let's talk about a a program which uh, was proposed back
3: in 90s uh, uh, using small aircraft transportation system a a, 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 such program which was proposing a 12-seater or 15-seater very focused airplanes which would be using less utilized airports and 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 when we are talking about excess distance and excess times the program ran for five six years and Later they realized that the location of existing airports is just not good enough for short transportation for uh, in aviation. we have found that only Excel why the focus on big airports is increasing and and why we are not focused uh, like shifting the focus to less utilized airports because accessing those airports is getting much more difficult. So Jasmine, yeah. stop there. Sure.
1: All right, because now it's time for their closing statements. Um, so so take us home uh, and I'll uh, let Adrian start.
2: Yeah, I'll, um, I'll make this relatively short and sweet because I think uh, I'm just trying to sort of hone in on some of the, the key points that, that we've raised. Um, you know, I, I do think that there's an opportunity for community activation and placemaking utilizing new mobility technology, and I think that can include aviation infrastructure. Um, my other side is gone, but anyway, um, so I was gonna say, supporting and integrating intermodal connectivity, I think, is going to be one of the keys to unlocking aviation infrastructure, new aviation infrastructure. Um, and I think I would really just encourage everyone, sort of, the AM industry can be a bit of an echo chamber, right? And I think we really need to break out of that echo chamber, think dynamically, and think creatively about our products. We need to be specific about who's being served, why. What purposes, what benefits does that communicate? How do you communicate those benefits? And when we start that process, because I think we've been ha- we've been highly generic um, and that's not actually what's gonna optimize AAM, right? What's gonna optimize AAM, both from the perspective of, a, of the business and from the society is a cross-collaboration um, between multiple stakeholders and a very methodical planning process um, that puts weaves together, uh, where there's fundamentally a whole lot of complicated factors um and gets people talking in the same although they may come from different backgrounds the same vernacular around contributions and, and meaningful roles of, of this technology in society
3: okay. okay yeah um i would like to uh, say that i'm a true believer in e-equal technology it has given i mean we have come so far along the curve and uh, and there's a lot we can capture from this technology alone and there are true sure the purposes there are Use cases where etal uh, has uh, has an upper hand compared to alternative ways. the um, urban cargo transportation. It's much easier to transport uh, cargo than passengers with which uh, with, with less risk and uh, with more efficiency and there are other case uh, case uses like airport shutters where the demand in the corridors uh, exist already and people are looking for faster ways so let's say a particular corridor from downtown LA to LA so you don't even have to think about trip pooling you don't even think about deadheading there exists enough demand to be able to operate this more sustainably and that's our focus should be and we should not lie uh, ourselves in saying that this mode is for all you can you can take it from anywhere in the city and and get anywhere uh, to the other part of the city but uh, we need to focus on the use cases which we can develop and we need to take into account community perception during the development there have been more d- developments in past where, where we didn't care about things like noise safety and later got a lot of opposition from communities and 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 we need to improve that particular part of our development where we take into account all uh, like all, all the possible uh, problems community can face and um overall to get the, build a, a useful and more sustainable use case for uh, urban air mobility and just not claim that there are gonna be hundreds of EV flying and you will be able to save f- 15 minutes just by taking this compared to your ground transportation. All right,
1: let's give them a round of applause. For you to, um... And I I do want to say I wasn't here, but I've heard now multiple reports of the AAM Roundtable yesterday um, about how very lively it became um, when the discussion of racial equity and community engagement arose. And I will also say that, you know, y'all, Los Angeles just elected our first female Mm -hmm. mayor, second African-American mayor. Um, And when she was in Congress, uh, Ms. Ballas was a member of the Quiet Skies Coalition, so she has spent a lot of her career thinking about how to make sure that community does not become, uh, you know, sort of overcome and overlooked in these discussions, that we value the the public space, the ability to look up in the sky and see clouds, Um, and that we take that seriously and that we think about you know, for five to seven percent of the 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 sort of trips, what do we give up and what do we receive in exchange? It is way past time to ground that conversation, mind the pun, uh, in specifics uh, for communities. And I will just give you one anecdote before turning it back over to, to Steve, um, which is that you know, when I was at LABOT and we were working on this. Um, I received a lot of, of communication from the Federal Aviation Administration going back and forth. And the FAA was using this word community in their letters. We want to think about community, community, community. And I thought, how amazing. This is incredible. They're talking about community. This is great. And it so dawned on me that when the FAA said community, what they meant was industry. And right now, that's the conversation that's occurring. So it is is, uh, a moment for all of us to come together and see, um, can we, as Adrian's sort of call to action um, inspires us to do, can we truly listen to um, alternative perspectives on this uh, in a a way that is not defensive? Can we own the mistakes of the past um, and recognize that it is not acceptable for us to continue uh, to repeat them? We do so at our peril because we are connected. Um, and the role of mobility and transportation is really quite simple. It's just to help every single person achieve the dream that they have when they wake up every morning, whether that's to take your kid to school, to lift their family up out of poverty, um, or just to go meet their friends uh, for a drink after work. So uh, with that, I will thank Steve again, our, our host, and thank Adrienne here, Um, and thank you all for, for being a great audience. Really appreciate it.